Welcome to Jesus Has Left the Building, where we hear from guests all over the country who have been engaging in creative, bold, and fluid outside the box, I mean outside the church building ministry, that has inspired us to think outside the box and outside the church building too. This is the Jesus Has Left the Building podcast, where ministers, activists, scholars, authors, liturgy makers, where God's beloved community has left the building too, with Marta and Mandy. Welcome back, listeners. We are so excited for you to hear this second episode of Facing Our Fears with Reverend Dr. Anthony Scott. Um, We have talked about disrupt, and today we're going to talk about discredit. We um, want you to go back if you haven't yet listened to that first episode. Um, please go back and listen to it at some point, but I don't think it'll be, I don't think you have to do them in order. Do you think, Anthony? I don't think so. All right. You can do it whenever your little heart desires. Um, And we're so excited about um, at the end of this mini series, three, three um, episode season, we are going to have a live Zoom with Anthony and he'll be taking questions and we'll be talking more in depth about these ideas that we've covered in these first three episodes. That is going to be on February 6th at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Um, and in, in order to be a part of that, you'll need to sign up. We are asking for donations that will go um, directly to Anthony. So check the um, website for the link to be able to sign up for that Zoom and definitely participate with us. So with all of that, I'm going to turn it over to Anthony and he's going to lead us through this next part of the series. Thanks, Mandy and Marta for having me uh, back on. Um, I want to First, see if you have any thoughts or reflections on what we talked about last week. And uh, if you have any anything that has popped up for you since then. And if not, we can just move ahead. Yeah, I um, actually continually, and I asked this question, um, and I know that it's going to be a different answer for everybody, um, but it just sort of came to me again, Anthony, is that this work... Um, is really needs to be happen in, in a community that's going to hold you accountable and that you're going to have trust. Um, and, um, and what I want to say about Anthony um, is that his grace abounds and that he uh, brings a humor to it and um, really holds space, um, even when it is really uncomfortable. And so that is why I think uh, people should listen and engage. Um, and also, you know, I know that finding a community, I know that there's some people out there that live in, you know, super rural communities that are predominantly white or. Um, are you and, to me? <laughs> I, I actually wasn't. I was actually thinking about a lot of our churches, a lot right. of our really tiny churches um, in the United Church of Christ specifically are in these places that are um, not um, multicultural. And so um, where do you find community to do this work when you are not in spaces? How do you build relationships with people? 
um, that are not exactly like you. Um, and so, you know, just to do an extra little plug, that is where our Zoom conversation can be that space for you. Um, that is one option. But I guess, Anthony, that is one of the things that I think um, people are going to be like, well, I, there's, there's no way, like my neighbors are white um, and in their own worlds and my churches are white. <laughs> um, and, you know, where, where do I find places to do this work? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think that it is okay for people who live in communities that are, that seem homogenous, um, racially, ethnically, um, socioeconomically, and in other ways, homogenous, for those people to themselves gather in groups around work that is not, work that um, is talking about anti-racist uh, ideas and precepts, concepts, um, and the internal work that must happen, right? I think it's okay for communities that are, that seem homogenous, maybe all white, right, to engage in these conversations with among themselves and then to find things maybe connected to these works or these authors that allow them to engage with people uh, in broader spheres across the country, across the world. White supremacy is not a uh, only a local issue or a national issue, it's an international issue. Um, and so uh, I think that engaging where you are, how you are right now is fine. In fact, the sooner the better. Um, with with those with whom you share common language, right? That might be the the best entry for you to feel some sense. There will be discomfort, but but for you to feel some sense of familiarity in the space, so that you can engage fully, and maybe that engagement will will lead you to uh, want to engage more broadly. And maybe even um, in some ways, like protect like it, I mean it is true I think that um well-meaning groups of white folks can do harm um when they lean too heavily on um people of color before doing enough work I mean even when they've done lots of work actually um but before doing a lot of work and so I hear in that answer that um that idea that actually that homogenous group might be where you need to start, not just for your own um, learning, but also for the protection of those around you. I think that's right. Is 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 definitely what what can happen is um, in these spaces when when white folk uh, want to gather with groups of people who are not white to talk about racist racism. Um, what can happen is a condition called Caucasian catharsis. Mm. And this is where, and well, I hope you like that term, but this is where it's like, I am simply just in relationship in a room on a Zoom with people who are not white. And so ah, I feel better. Uh -huh. And so actually um, going home, being at home with people you are already in community with and already have identity with to 
come out to them as one as a racist and one who wants to learn about racism and be anti-racist, that may be the most difficult thing you do. Yeah, I think that in one of our last episodes, in our last season, one of the people actually said that, um, what does it mean to interrogate our own whiteness? Mm. And um, so that was one kind of interesting thing, but I think that that work has to be super intentional if you're in those homogenous communities is to really say, we've got to interrogate our whiteness. And I think the other piece of of it is um, the idea of intersectionality is to name your own personal intersection, to name that, acknowledge it, know it, and or in your community where those isms lie. So it might, maybe it's not racism. Maybe, I mean, of course it is because, you know, we're all dripping in it, but to really name all of those isms in that space, like who's showing up in that space and what are those isms? Does that make sense? Um, I found that that is one of the first and most important places to start when it comes to this anti-racism. And Anthony, please correct me if I'm wrong, because um, I think jumping ahead without doing that foundational work, I'm I'm not sure that it will be effective. Yeah, some of it is, some of the work must be on yourself. It must be the work of, you know, going back to the the uh, construct of facing your fears, the reflection piece. It must be the internal reflection, like the the moving to the action and the outward signs and showing that I'm identifying with this group and with this movement of of people that like that that can uh, lend itself to seeking praise too soon. I, I'm I'm thinking now about. Uh, Jesus again. Um, Jesus talks about. I love it when you talk about Jesus. (laughs) Yeah, I yeah I and I I can't help talking about Jesus. I I I love him so much. So, um, Jesus talks about these these Pharisees who stand out on these street corners, right? Uh, This is Jesus uh, Jesus's world, right? This ancient Hebrew um, world on this African tectonic plate. And Jesus is standing and saying, you know, don't be like the Pharisees who stand out in the public square saying, I thank you, God, that I am not like these other hypocrites. And and in that, Jesus says they have received their reward because what they were looking for was praise and and acknowledgement from others that they are doing their work right they were that that's what they were looking for and that's what they received and in some ways um, in many ways when folks who are white come to spaces looking to be in in community and use the air quotes again with people who are not white to talk about um uh anti-racism uh anti any other ism and they have not done their own internal work and internal reflection maybe they are looking not to receive not the actual inward change that must happen, the the actual uh, change of heart, change of thinking, the metanoia that's necessary. They might actually just be looking for 
um, the outward signs that they are actually with people who are not like them. And so thus, I've received my praise already. This is the gratification that I want, right? And this and this work is not about gratification. It's, it is about uh, mitigating soul harm. It is about mitigating soul death. It is not about self-gratification. This is about yeah. inducing life and a life that leads to abundance. It's the, um, you know, oh, but my best friend is black or I have lots of friends who are queer or whatever, right? You don't like, okay, well, fine. Then that's your joy. You have got friends who are different from you and you will not do the self-reflection to move you and the people around you into um, a healthier soul saving space. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's good stuff. We could go on and on, but we actually do have, I know I'm using my hands um, because we have more information. So Anthony, lay it on us. Okay, so I wanna uh, uh, thank you for that and revisit the definition. I think definitions are important um, because they get us on the same track, talking about the same thing and knowing what we mean when we say a thing. So there are uh, many definitions of, of racism. There are many scholars, many practitioners, many people who are simply thinkers thinking about uh, this construct and what it is and what it does, who have put their, their spin, added their voice into the world about what racism is and does. And so I'm simply adding another definition for the purposes of our discussion today. So racism is the death-dealing conjunction of ways of being, ontology, ways of knowing, epistemology, and ways of meaning-making, psychology, derived from one racialized group being prescribed as normative for all persons without regard for ethnicity, heritage, or racial identity. And this is what it does. If one falls short of the ethnocentric ideal, the fetishized ideal in mind, body, or spirit, racist, those who are within the system and trying to uphold it, will seek to correct. And if someone will not be corrected, racism will seek to destroy you. So, yeah, you know, that's the most, that, that, that last part is, is, um, so, I mean, yeah, I, I'm, I'm just sitting with it for a second because um, I think that all of us seek to correct mm -hmm. all the time. And it is one of the most unintentional things that, that we do. Um, and it is based on, you know, our upbringing and generations of normative um, practice and, and 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 it is the master narrative um, that we we must operate in a certain way and um, because that is the best way that is the most productive way that is the um, uh, that is what progress is um, is that normative master narrative um, and we can't help it 
in some ways. Like, I mean, we can, but we can't like, like we're doing, we're doing it all the time. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Without even knowing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how, talk about that a little bit. How do we begin? I mean, and I'm, that's a little bit what you talked about with disrupting last and gave us sort of some uh, practices and tactics for disrupting. And and now we're sort of in this um, discredit space. But that is the most poignant piece for me that really struck me deeply. Right, Right. yeah, because the thing is, I mean, the the construct, the the hegemonic narrative, the, the, the thinking, the desire to correct lives within us right because going back to what i said in the last episode um white supremacy is the god who seeks to shape and form us in its in its image and likeness all creation right and so when it does that it it, i mean it impacts not only our ways of being and doing and knowing but but impacts our, our the ways we're in community and that we seek to correct and seek to uh, restore balance, right? And a sense of equilibrium in the world is we just act and speak out of that place. So like, let, let's, let's walk into how this, um, this looks in a space of discrediting racism. So in our last episode, we shared how Elijah McLean existing, uh, as he was, resulted uh, in agents of white supremacy, whether they were knowingly acting as agents of white supremacy or not, right? Agents of white supremacy subduing him to the point of death. And there are some people, maybe in even in our listening audience, who believe Elijah McLean should have just complied. Mm. Even though he had committed no crime, even though he was unarmed, he was respectful, he was in his own neighborhood, he was minding the business that paid him when he was confronted uh, with white supremacist violence and asked, mandated to comply with it. There live, um, even within the communities of people who who, uh, say and actually want to fight racism, there live within us cognitive distortions. Cognitive distortions are tricks that our minds play on us, usually based on some kind of script or narrative that plays, it's a a, a tape, a recording that plays over and over again. It tells us what the world is and and does, uh, and it's not based in, in actual reality uh it's based on the on truths that we are holding um in our minds so to put it bluntly it's a story that we might believe to be true and believe it to be true because you made it up in your own head about what has happened uh what's happening what will happen and who's at fault so racism creates its own cognitive distortions which say that people in positions of power are white, and that means that they are right. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that um, that is, in some ways, 
like the deepest form of generational trauma that can ever exist, um, particularly in this country. Um, and as you said, um, globally, but, uh, how it feels for me when I hear that, Anthony, I'm like, there's, there's no way, there's mm -hmm. no way we're going to be able to do this. Um, because it is, so many generations and um, has seeped into all of our institutions in this country um, that have found success, um, found success in that paradigm. Mm -hmm. And, and people want to be successful. Mm -hmm. And they simply don't want to, people want to be, I mean, wanna, right? Like, yeah. Well, I mean, even the white people are stuck, right? right? Because they want, they're stuck too, right? And so it is this like double whammy, like people of color don't want to die. Pe you know, uh, white people uh, want to be successful. Black people want to be successful. And so we are all like mixed into this insidious, toxic culture um, that how do we even sift through it? Through it? Like, how does that even happen? So like, I think about like um, systems of accreditation. So like, you know, I went to seminary, right? So um, grad school for, for people who are seeking to serve the church or maybe entering academia doing theological studies. Uh, there's the ATS, which is the Association of Theological Schools or something like that. Um, and they are the, the body who people put their trust in. Sim, sim, institutions put their trust in this body to uphold a certain standard of what it means to be a theological school, providing theological education and granting degrees, right? They put a lot of trust in this institution. And I think that racism is, that, is an accrediting body, right? It may not be named as such, but it is it is uh something that we we measure all life by all ways of being by mm -hmm. this accrediting institution right and so that's why we're talking about discrediting it right saying what success looks like in a construct that honors and holds itself to the standard of white hegemonic supremacy right, is not actually success. What, what is truth in the cognitive distortion that this construct has us in is not true. We do not honor or get, lend credit or credibility to this construct, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, so people will say, um uh, uh uh why didn't you know like white supremacy says well if he just complied like he would be alive if he just complied with this system with people who were in authority he would just be he would be alive but people we can but how do people say that in the face of looking at the video of george floyd's uh lynching murder he complied with um, the officer, he was subdued, right? And 
and still murdered. Like, mm-hmm. I, it's like, no, com- compliance with, with white supremacy does not guarantee your safety. It might still mean uh, your death. I mean, look at the story of Emmett Till. Emmett Till is a little, um, a boy who's living in Chicago with his mother. He's going down to visit relatives in Money, Mississippi. And uh, he's out and about living his uh, best black boy life on his summer vacation in the South. Um, And he's accused by a white woman of whistling at her, right? And, And saying, uh, that he is is harassing her, and uh, this results in him being lynched. But what we know now, in a recent, I believe it was Time Magazine uh, interview and article, the the woman who accused him, right, recanted the whole story and says that she just simply made it up. So what this means is Emmett Till actually complied with the ways of being that were prescribed. Somehow there's a cognitive distortion. Maybe Emmett just shouldn't have said anything. He didn't. Right. The problem isn't that Emmett said something or did something or didn't. The problem is, is that Emmett Till was Black. Exactly. He just was who he was. And so this goes back like to even the, the cognitive distortion. I mean, further, right. it says not only that people who are white are right, but it says it, it upholds the underlying belief that people who are of the African diaspora, indigenous populations of the earth, and all othered people whose skin has benefited from the development of melanin are wrong. Mm-hmm. that we are up to no good and that we are in need of correction in the right and white way mm-hmm. right so this sounds like you should just comply you should just have a name that doesn't have multiple syllables you should just have a name that's easier to pronounce you should just wear your hair straight and in ways that look white you should take on a christian name like sarah or sam right a Christian name. It, it is really a, a, a Western, whatever that means, and 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 name that 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 makes white folk feel comfortable, right? So, so because what, what, we, yeah. Ahead. Oh no, I'm just there's several things that are coming up for me. Um, because we are people of the church, and that is our, that's the institute institution in which we um which we are in, um. Uh, it is also a place that has been so beyond harmful um, in in this nation. Um, and so what is our responsibility? Um, I know that we're going to have a lot of faith leaders out there listening to this. Um, what is our respons- responsibility as people of faith? You know, early on when I was getting ordained, I come from, my immediate family is not particularly religious. Um, and so one of uh, one of our family members asked me, um, you know, why are you doing this, and uh, and why are you doing this particular thing as a liberal Christian? And I'm doing this particular thing because it provides a platform for change in the wider culture, and um, and it's scary. It's super hard and it's super scary because every single time you come up against those barriers 
that you are talking about, Anthony, um, which I think leads into facing your fears, right? It leads into this idea that you have put out there around, um, it, is, it is fearful, it is scary, and it is really, really hard. Um, but what does it mean to sort of shift like a little bit by a little bit within the realm that we are able to do that? Right, right. Well, I first want to go back to your talking about like the the uh, the church being kind of beyond harmful and beyond complicit in, in this in this um in systemic racism i want to recommend like a book called the color of compromise mm. subtitle is the truth about the american church's complicity in racism it's a text by jamar tisby and chapter by chapter word by word line by line like he offers a unvarnished um objective i think uh reading of of american church history talking about the ways in which the church has um contorted itself to conform to the to conform and uphold uh the image of white supremacy in america and to and to add to lend its credit the credit of christianity to um to uh white supremacies as as practiced and known um in this country right so the act of discrediting looks like looking at institutions that we know that we love or or loathe but that we trust like medical science okay so look at look at medical science i i i i know that there are some people who are probably you know skeptical of me saying that but like if you've had a blood test lately uh i would like you to look at your blood test and you'll see a um, test or a result called the EGFR, or which which is the estimated glomerular filtration rate. And what it looks at is, I think it's how much protein is flowing in your blood, right? How much protein are flowing, and you will see um, two possible scores. And you're like, how in the world is that possible? There is one score if you are African-American. And there is one score if you are any other race. Really? Yeah. Go go look. I mean, like when you when you can, like go go look this up. I mean, you can even Google it. Now, this is because of a cognitive distortion which has been trusted so much that it has worked its way to credibility in medical science. That the distortion is that Black people, simply because we are Black, have more muscle mass and therefore have more protein in our blood. But that's like putting, uh, this is the... Um right? Putting all black people into some category. Like there are like little teeny tiny black people. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, well, and also no, like no muscle mass. 
I know, but like, let's take it even like, I have more melatonin in my skin than Mandy, for example. So do I have more protein than right. she does? Right, well, like, I mean, and, and, because they're not a spectrum or something. But it doesn't matter. You have less protein in your blood because you are not black, right? At least that's what medical science would tell us. But it's based on this cognitive distortion, right? This idea, this image that has been up. It, the, it's the institution of racism, right? Uh, particularly with a subcategory of uh, slave science, right? Science that was... Um, uh, practiced and believed because of American slavery or in American slavery says that this one thing is true. No matter uh, your ancestry, your genetics, no matter your, 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 uh, your practice of bodybuilding or trying to bulk up. I mean, no, it's just because of your race, not because of any genetic markers, just your race, right? So this is based on, like I said, slave science. It says that enslaved Africans benefited. They benefited from backbreaking labor on plantations because they had a naturally diminished lung capacity and weaker hearts and needed to work so that they could be healthy and happy. Was, isn't that convenient? <laughs> that is convenient, isn't it? Lundy Braun um, from the Canadian Journal of Respiratory Therapy uh, wrote in that journal, had a piece published, um, and he asked the question, what is the th history of this practice? How did the idea of racial uh, and ethnic difference in lung capacity become so widely accepted that correction factors are usually uh, actually plugged in, programmed into spirometers, right? Spirometers, like the what's what's your lung capacity? Like there's actually a different score that is calculated based on your race. This notion, uh, diff, uh, arguing that black and white lungs differ, has a long history. He writes, dating to the early years of the U.S. slavery-based republic. In his influential notes on the uh, state of Virginia, former president and leading Enlightenment intellectual Thomas Jefferson featured lung differences between slaves and white colonists. Among the many physical distinctions that Jefferson described to justify the condition of slaves in the Republic, one difference was a, quote, a difference of structure in the pulmonary apparatus, unquote. Jefferson's idea about lungs would remain, however, in the realm of philosophical speculation without empirical foundation until the second half of the 19th century, end quote. Questioning these normative assumptions scientific assumptions that are really based, credited on racial differences that have no basis in truth or fact. They are alternative facts. They are fake news, the mm. real kind. Mm. That is the work of discrediting, saying, what is, what is actually true here? There was a relatively recent um, 
uh, uh, survey done of med students, I forget what, what state, but some state on the Eastern seaboard, like first year med students to um, ask them questions like, you know, um, are, is black people's skin thicker than white people's skin? Oh my God. And, and, and more of them than not said yes. Do black med students. Med students. Do black people feel less pain than white people? Most of them said yes. That's right. Like yes, these these questions that are that the answers are simply race based. Oh, we think they don't feel pain. Mm-hmm. So, like in our in our own world, um, what would be I mean, because most of us don't hang out with like, you know, medical people or um, what are what are some ways that we can discredit discredit um, in 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 ways that are, you know, might be obvious to you, but maybe not to the rest of us. Um, Super simple ways that we can say, yeah, no, that's that's not going to fly. You look, you look at, you evaluate situations like with Elijah McLean and you say, no, actually, if maybe if he complied, nothing would actually be different. Mm-hmm. You look at situations that arise in the, in the world in which you live, in the sphere in which you live and say, actually, everything wouldn't be okay if they just did what was prescribed, right? So right. we'll often say, um, uh, why don't um, something something like, why don't these minoritized people go to the doctor? Why don't they just eat better? Then they will live better lives. They will be healthier. They will be happier. Why don't they just get a college education? Why don't they just do this or that? And the the work of discrediting is is, uh, in part, the work of problematizing, making problematic some assumptions that we hold, right? Saying, oh, is eating better is one thing, but there are food deserts. There are grocery stores who will not go into uh, areas that are that are impoverished, areas that are lacking other resources, uh, areas that don't have a Starbucks, right? Right. So in some ways, the just to get back to this idea of systemic racism, the system and structure, the infrastructure of our culture is like being held up by like steel posts. There is no way um, it, it is going to be always be so much stronger than the individual that finds themselves in it under all circumstances. It was true with Emmett Till. It was true with Elijah McCain. It is true with George Floyd. It The structures are almost impossible to start undoing. And if we could somehow in those moments where we find ourselves um, thinking about a particular situation, um, if we can just always start to like slowly chip away and discredit, discredit that structure and system, 
then maybe <laughs> um, it will start to get a little bit wobbly. Um, and further, but, I would add like this, uh, that these structures, these systems are made and held up by individuals. And so if individuals begin to question and become wobbly in themselves, maybe they vote differently, right? I'm thinking about, um, and Anthony, feel free to tell me that I'm being racist here, but I, um, I'm thinking about, I grew up. Mandy, we are. I know, racist. right? I am. Um, thank you. Um, I grew up in a family that like loves the sports, you know, and um, like I have heard multiple people say things about why there are more black people, black young men in professional sports about things like this medical thing, right? Like, well, they're faster and they have, um, you know, different lung capacity and they're stronger and whatever. And like, even, even like upholding this thing that feels like it's not that big of a deal. Oh, it's just sports, whatever. Like, it feels like there's some sort of connection here because it's about like, like putting people of color into a, a, a category that just chips away at their humanity, right? Mm -hmm. That just says, nope, they're different so we can treat them different, right? Is it, am I? No, you're, 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 you are right. Uh, it is, it is like ascribing some superhuman or subhuman status. Like either them. way, it's problematic, right. right? Either, either way. So like, so like, um, uh, um, um, Michael, Michael Brown was a young man that had just graduated high school who was, uh, uh, murdered, uh, gunned down in Ferguson, Missouri. Um, and, uh, uh, when the, the, the guy who shot him, the police officer, former officer who, who shot him, uh, gave an interview on like 60 minutes. He said, I felt like he was the incredible Hulk. And mm. I was just hanging on, just like I'm puny and I'm just hanging on to this monstrous human being. And the fact is that the, the officer who shot uh, Michael Brown and Michael Brown were the same height. Mm -hmm. Right? So it's like there was no physical difference, but there was a cognitive distortion. There's something in the mind that says, godlike status subhuman you know like way of reasoning and making meaning in the world that that uh their the way of being family and and being in love is is not is not of the same uh caliber as of those who are white right so that is the work of discrediting in fact it's interesting uh ctes like the 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 uh, the concussion protocol mm. measurements for athletes who who suffer concuss concussions like especially football players right there's a lot of head injury that, ha that has happened uh one uh, uh the 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 science around the evaluation of the severity of the concussion or the cognitive injury is race-based like as wherein they say oh this black player who's had this concussion 
their cognition has diminished or or looks lower, but that's just probably natural. His brain probably was never that good. It's race-based, right? So it's discrediting these things that are held up as normative. And if, it, if we can do it in our minds, as I was saying, maybe that changes the way we vote in the world. Not only you know voting at the ballot box, but, but voting with our voice and with our actions, how we, how we show up and how we attribute trust and credit to these systems and these structures. And if enough people ask questions, and will will acknowledge cognitive their cognitive distortions and say that perhaps they're not true. Then perhaps we change our whole societal construct, right? Perhaps and perhaps we don't know what that construct yet looks like, but perhaps it's one that we construct together instead of one that we uh, construct based on. Um, these these distortions, these lies that we that that are upheld in 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 these you know well respected, trusted with our lives kinds of institutions. Right. Yep. That's what that's what I mean by discredit. That's why I spent so much time on like the medical science because it's it is like bedrock foundational institution. We all go to the doctor. But what you know now is that when you, uh, you know, people who are white go to the doctor, you are evaluated differently than people who are not white. And uh, even people who are not white and are not black are evaluated differently, right? So uh, even, and I bring up medical science because I was a chaplain in a hospital for for a while and was able to see some of the th these things close up. But if a, a person with sickle cell anemia walks into the hospital, uh, two patients with sickle cell anemia walk into a hospital, one is black and one is white, um, they will receive different kinds of care. A white person will receive uh, the pain medication, pain medication that they need if they're sickle cell crisis, a pain crisis. And they may say, you know, I know that this uh, pain management medication does not work well for me. I need this, not that. Uh, a doctor uh, uh, is likely to prescribe that because they know what works well for their body. But if a black patient in a sickle cell pain crisis walks into the, to the doctor, the doctor uh, in the medical whole institution will likely say they are drug seeking. Mm. And if you know what medication works best for your body, then you are you are drug seeking and you know what gets you high. And I'm not going to let you get high because I know you're black and you're drug seeking. Somehow, just because of race, there's a different mm -hmm. credit, mm -hmm. a different thought mm -hmm. of, of what is what is right, what what is valid. You know, an, an assumption of of a person's entire ontology, a person's entire being based on the color of their skin. Right, and I think the scariest part about that um, is that for us, us, those people who are not people of color and are not black, um, we do it all the time. We do it in different ways all the time. And we might not say it out loud because we know better not to say it out loud, but um, it is a reality. And I think that uh, that is where the self-awareness piece comes in. Oh, 
I just had that thought. Why did I just have that thought? What, what in my structure, what in that, my upbringing, what taught me to have that thought and to name it and say it. And, um, I will say that I have, um, I've had thoughts like that around different things, um, over the course of my life. Um, and I just noted it like, okay, I've, I, I had that thought. And I know better not to share that thought with anybody um, because, you know, um, it is, it is not right. It is not okay. Um, But also it it was there. And, um, and I think as we end our time together, Anthony, um, I want you to just remind people of this idea of, of your acronym around fear, because, um, because it is scary. It is scary for me um, to start naming that out loud, to start having those conversations, to start acknowledging the issue. Um, And because it's risky. I I could lose relationship with you. I could lose relationship with another. And that's scary and hard. I can lose relationship with a congregation over it. So as we end our time together, I'd love for you to speak into that one more time so people can start to get their heads wrapped around it. Definitely. Um, So I'll give a definition and then walk through the acronyms. Um, To discredit racism is to simply undermine the credibility of racist actions, behaviors, and thoughts. From individuals and from systems. That's right. That's right. That's right. So this face your fears framework, I think, I think uh, you're right, Martha. Really um, <laughs> helps and names that that there is there is fear, there is um, sorrow, there is um, just a complex of emotions that come up when we begin to talk about these systems and what they do, right, and how they shape us. So we, I think, we face our fears by um, with faith formation right? The F in fears. Um, knowing who we who we are as people of faith, as people who follow in the way of, of whichever teacher uh, calls to you. But to me, it is Jesus, right? Um, seeing how Jesus um, uh, addresses uh, those who, who have differences in, in uh, ethnicity, in in socioeconomic status, in class status, right? And then there's the work of education, finding books, finding resources, finding podcasts like Jesus has left the building, finding um, uh, memes and reels and TikToks and things like that, that will kind of give some uh, consciousness raising education to to you about about what you might want to say and what you might not want to say and why what you want to say you shouldn't say uh, what 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 falsehood is there what offense is there um the a in fears is accountability accountability is about community having a relationship with people um who can hold you to account, who can call you in or call you out 
on your actions, on your beliefs, on your on your words, on your thought processes, and challenge you. Um, and 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 in community, you can receive that challenge, right? It, it hopefully you have relationship enough where you don't say immediately, "Oh, you mean me nothing but harm." It's like maybe maybe this person is saying something that I need to hear. And then the R, reflection, an opportunity to be introspective, to look inward and to uh, take the time to examine yourself, to look at yourself and your actions, your beliefs and say, you, you know what? what, what is holding me back here? What am I holding on to? What is, what, what are these series of beliefs doing for me? How am I benefiting? Why do I have so much grief with letting them go? And then the S, sorrow. There's a lot of grief here. There's a lot of grief to be acknowledged that, um, that uh, we've been living in a system and operating with this system as, as a credible institution in our lives. Right. So there's a lot of grief, a lot of unpacking to do. So sit with that, sit with that sorrow, sit in that in that place and uh, begin to deal with how you feel instead of running to a place of anger or a place of despondency. Sit with the grief, sit with the sorrow uh, and allow it to transform you, allow it to be a part of your healing process, your healing journey, so that you might come out whole on the other end. Yeah, that's so good. Facing your fears um, is scary, and it's the only work that we can do um, for those of us who are Christians, for those of us who are people of faith. It is um, key to living that whole and full life that we're called to live. Um, Anthony, we're as always super grateful for you and your time. Um, listeners, stay tuned. Um, next Monday, we'll release the final episode of this mini series with Reverend Dr. Anthony Scott facing your fears. And um, don't forget about the live Zoom that you can be a part of. Check out the link on our website, www.jhltb.com to get a hold of that link and register to be a part of that live conversation. Thank you, Anthony. And thank you, Marta. As always, it is so good to be in community with you both. Thank you. Thanks. If you like what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, consider supporting the podcast at patreon.com backslash jhltb. This podcast is made possible by the Rocky Mountain Conference of the United Church of Christ Tributary Fund. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and message us to learn how you can be part of this effort to tell stories, have conversations, build relationships, and follow Jesus out of the church and into the world.